Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. hymns of song of praise to a God who is far more than worthy than we can even comprehend. Take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is, we've been expositing this gospel for the last so many months, I think it's been over a year, um, but just diving into this text, we kind of come halfway to this, to this gospel, 16 chapters in the book of Mark in chapter 8, and there's a lot to be continue to study and to learn. The title of today's sermon is, Do You Not Yet Understand? Let me read the passage, the narrative that sits as the focus of our study this morning. Starting in verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of, of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Let us pray. Father, we... We thank you for this morning and and for our time to gather and to worship and to study and, Father, to look to you, the one who is worthy, the one who who calls, the one who saves, the one who redeems. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the implications of the disciples that they truly didn't understand, and yet, by your kindness and through your word, And through the Spirit, you call us to understand. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use your tools. Spirit, have your way with our thoughts and our actions. And Father, may you 
Help us to be conformed and grasp the text. Be with your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Do you not understand? Compelling words, especially to the context and what Jesus says them to. Remember, his disciples have been traveling with him. They've been called out. They have been living with Christ, going across country, seeing the, the nature of what is, has happened and, and all these miracles and all these casting out of demons and, and so many divine truths put on display, and yet they still missed and have misunderstanding. When you think about this, and then you also have the Pharisees. I mean, here they are. Scripture says they, they came to him again. They, they, they came to argue with him. Of course, they have no desire to learn. They are there to test him. They see him as an enemy. They, they want to rebuke him. They want to publicly humiliate him. Excuse me. Can you say that right? But here they are, throwing rocks. They have a different misunderstanding. They don't want to. And so when you think about these two groups, Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus and the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the day, you find two groups of people. And in all reality, that's exactly what happens in life today. There are two groups of people in this world, especially when it comes to knowing Christ, and understanding him, there are those who do, by the grace of God, through the, the transformational work of the Spirit in their life, and those who don't. That division is distinct. It is just as night as today. Metaphors throughout the scriptures are littered with an understanding of these two definitive groups that we often encounter in the pages of scriptures as well as in this life. There are those who are called as sheep. And those who are called as goats. They are often compared, these two groups are, as to, to wheat and chaff, believers and unbelievers, those in the light and those who are in the darkness. Those who get it and those who don't. Those whose minds are blinded and can't get an understanding they, of course, are blinded by their own selfishness, their own sin, as compared to those who have their minds open. By the grace of Christ, by the fact of reality of salvation, by the fact that there is spirit working within, illumination comes and truth becomes clearer. Of course, those two distinct groups are present as we with us now, I mean, we think about individuals. You ever had conversations with individuals who, who are just like talking to a brick wall? They are so far distant. They, are, they're just, they don't even connect on the same level when you, when you start talking about spiritual things. Over this week, we, we had such an experience. Father-in-law had a, had a joy of, of, of seeing my in-laws in Arizona, and, and he had organized a ride, and our whole family went on this razor ride, and and these gentlemen, they were very kind with giving of their stuff to let us to participate in, in creation and seeing all these things. And so we started talking about creation, the beauty of the, of the cactus, 
there is beauty there. Just to see how all of the flowers that come and, and what could be and seeing pictures of what those would look like in the midst of a, a blossoming time. And, and yet, I'm reminded of, of my wife relating a story to me as we kind of rotated cars, how one gentleman, every time she brought up Christ and his creation, he quickly turned the radio or was fidgeted somewhere else. He was so uncomfortable. On the other hand, when you interact with those who know Christ, it is utter bliss. You think about that. You go and travel anywhere, and anybody who has a saving, redeeming relationship with Christ, you have instant connection. That's the beauty of traveling overseas and, and seeing saints from afar and, and, and greeting them from the first time. They know why you're there because you love Christ, and they understand that. And they embrace you as a brother and sister in Christ. And a friendship goes deeper, even though it had just started. This is what we have here in our text this morning. Jesus interacting with two distinct groups. One of them pretty much spiritually blinded to the things of godliness. And the other one who have been saved, but yet they're still trying to understand. They still need some clarity. They still need some teaching. Group run, you have Jesus and the Pharisees, and we'll know according to Matthew's account that you also have the Sadducees in their interaction, totally spiritually dead. Here they have the Messiah in front of them, and they choose not to see him as that. They do not desire to see him as the divine one, the sent one, the holy one. If anything, they, they label Jesus as the son of Satan. Group two, you have his disciples who have been benefiting from the fact of seeing all these miracles uh, in an upfront type of nature, and they, they have a front row seat, and they see all these things, but yet they still kind of, they miss the mark sometimes. They totally don't get it. And then you have our Savior, and I think this is what's so remarkable about this text, is that the patient nature of Christ just think how often Christ is patient with you in your knuckleheadedness, in your reality of thinking, man, Jesus is teaching some deep theological thought, but all you want is what? Lunch. You want bread. You're thinking about the weather. You're thinking about things that, that, that you're hoping that you at least get something to eat. A lot of moving parts, a lot of relationships going on here, and a lot of truth going to be unfold here, and it's just remarkable. To some degree, you would hope that it would be just as simple as one group who hates Jesus and, and doesn't get it, and the other group who knows Jesus and gets it, but that's not the case with the disciples. Yes, they know Jesus, but they don't totally understand. Now, do we give them grace? Absolutely. Why? Because full of revelation, full of understanding of the scriptures, we, we get that. But here they have Christ in front of them, displaying his divine nature. And all they can think about is lunch. One group has permanent spiritual blindness of rejecting Jesus because of their hatred for Christ. The others, they have a somewhat of a temporary spiritual blindness. They're, they're trying to understand. And Jesus is so kind to teach them and teach us. 
And so these two groups are on display here for us this morning. Those who have no light and those who have some light, but yet need a fuller understanding. By the way, this light and darkness concept is throughout the scriptures. You think about the Apostle John in this comparison of light and darkness in 1 John 1, 5, when he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light always attributing to itself to, to righteousness, to goodness, to holiness. Darkness always attributing itself to evil and misunderstanding and selfishness. Scriptures declare God is light, which means to say that God illumines the mind and the heart to those who are his. And for that matter, when one becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and repents and turns from their sin and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Scripture points to this reality of once being in one group, the dark group, the one with no light, the goat, the shaft, and the dark group, to being transferred to the sheep, the wheat, and the light group. I love Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 states this clearly when it says, For he, speaking of Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reality of those, that text is, is that you were once in the darkness. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that we're all depraved. We have total depravity. We, we are totally dead in our sins of trespass. We are in a dark place. That's the status of every person until the light shows up and transforms a heart. And Christ saving and redeeming a person brings them and transfers them and rescues them from the domain of darkness and puts them in the kingdom, in the kingdom of light. Jesus and only Jesus rescues those who are in the domain of darkness and in turn because of what he did on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension transfers the believer from this, get this, from, from dark to light. That's why we preach Christ. That's why you need to know Christ. To not know Christ means that you remain in your own darkness and Scripture is very clear that being one who's in the dark, the end result is judgment. Only Jesus and only by his grace can he make your soul transfer from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. Every, every unbelieving dark heart needs to hear and for that matter needs to receive the salvation and the light of salvation that Jesus can only provide. Jesus proclaimed this about himself when he said in John 8, 12, he said, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The only way out of spiritual darkness is to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Do you understand that? That's the simplicity of it. There's no other way. There's no other comparison. There's no other way out of this continual darkness unless you do that, unless you repent and believe. 
this is the narrative. This is what this is the contention. This is exactly what's happening. And as we dive into this narrative, if you want a little bit of an outline, you can tell that you don't have you have a blank page. Part of that is because of the earliness of Thanksgiving, but just giving her a title and letting you understand that I will give you the outline. But the first is looking at, just looking at these two groups, right? The darkness of the Pharisees. We see this in verse 11 through 13. The darkness of the Pharisees. Look again at verse 11. It reads, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Leading up to this chapter, we know the encounters of of Jesus in the religious leaders of the day. Very contentious. Remember, they already marched down from Jerusalem. They they sought Jesus out. They they desired to discredit him. They looked for maybe some action that they can point at and say that he is missing the mark. They saw him as a threat. They saw him as an enemy. We know according, like I said earlier, according to Matthew's gospel, points out that the Sadducees were, were also present, which is pretty remarkable when you think about the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They don't get along if you were just to go down the street. And yet they couple their allegiance because they have one common enemy, that being Christ. What's also interesting when you study this gospel, this is the, the final account of the conflict that Jesus will have with the religious leaders. He is going to be done with them. Kenyally rebukes them. This is the final conflict with these leaders in the area of Galilee. As we progress through this gospel, you know that he is, he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. going to head down to Judea and then eventually find himself up in Jerusalem, all for a purpose in the plan of salvation. Which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. He, I mean, he's just had it with them. And I think a lot of that's for us to see, just the, the nature of hatred that one can have towards Christ, the nature of those who can't get it or don't understand it, those who are in dark, darkness, who don't grasp the light. This would be the last time that they've seen the Lord and his displayed of miracles. All the miracles from here on out are for those who are his own to draw them to the truth, help them understand that he is God. And so he's preparing, as we well know, earlier in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 7, he, was, he took his disciples to teach them, and he's teaching his disciples. He's focusing the attention on those who are his. He's preparing them for, for future ministry. All these things are, 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 are gearing up. And like I said earlier, this is the, the, the high point, the apex of this gospel. We're eventually going to get to verse 29 here in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 8. And it's pretty remarkable. Why? Because of what Peter says. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that Jesus said, is pointing to the reality, and he wants the people to get that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is God's sent one, that he is himself, God himself. 
If you follow your eyes up to verse 29 of Mark 8, you'll see this. And he, speaking of Jesus, continued by questioning them, questioning the disciples. And he asked them this. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the group. He says this. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. There they get it. There they understood. As he pours out his divinity on display for people to grasp, he, 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 he finally gets a response. And of course, Peter's blessed, knowing that it was God who revealed that to him. By the way, this is true of every born-again believer. They finally realize, you finally realize that, that you are a sinner and need a Savior, but you understand that it's not just anyone that you come to. You come to the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. You proclaim this by your repentance and your faith in him, that Jesus is the Messiah. But for those who mock him, from the hearts of the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders of Israel. They have discredited Jesus openly and publicly. They have denounced his leadership in Israel. They think of him as a charlatan. And here it is, a distinct separation. Not only is this the last time that he has this conflict with these Galilean religious leaders. But it really is a separation from all those who will continue to follow those leaders. All they want to do is kill him. And so they're on a hunt to find him and do such a thing. And yet God is divinely sovereign over all the events However, for those who follow Christ, they know that that separation from what they know by removing themselves from the religious leaders of the day and setting their lives apart, truly believe that Christ is the Messiah. That shouldn't shock you. Jesus says, consider the cost. Understand that you all have struggles and difficulties, that, that you should leave even family in a sense, that you would trust the one who is the Messiah more so than loyalty to a family or to a religion. The ones who follow Christ, they are leaving their, their rabbis, their priests, to some degree, leaving even their nation. At least that's what they want them to think. But here's the joy. They're, they're turning their back on an apostate Judaism. They are turning their back on, on religious leaders who, who don't get it. They are definitely following the light. They have been transformed. They see it. They understand it. 
they truly believe. According to verse 11, Jesus is now back. He, he's, he's face to face with those who hate him. Here they are. They, they love their sin. They love their self-righteousness. They love their hypocrisy. They're challenging him. Begin to argue. Literally, it means in the Greek to dispute with him. They have issues with Christ, and they're not asking him for a sign so they can believe. They're asking him for a sign, as the scripture says, to test him. Remember the context as we lead into this, this section of scriptures. Remember, Jesus comes from Gentile lands. This is where it begins in chapter 8. He did a, an amazing miracle, much like he did in Galilee, by feeding 5,000 men in Galilee and 4,000 men in the Gentile areas. After that miracle, he sets sail across the Sea of Galilee. He, he goes across to Capernaum, he literally hits ground and they are there. He's back in Jewish territory. And they are just relentless. They are there to attack him. They are there to question him. They always show up. They know where he's at. And they can't wait to get their opportunity to throw a rock, to bring him down. Of course, they hate the light. They hate the truth. They, they never got the understanding of why the Messiah was there. They hate this, this message of repentance and forgiveness. They hate all that Jesus is. They're so wrapped up in their self-righteousness. They love prominence and power instead of being one confronted of their own sin and seeking forgiveness, they, they champion their own sin and dismiss the grace that they so much need. And so they come out again and they argue with him. And they test him. And this is pretty interesting. When you look into the cultural history of what's going on here, what, what kind of test do they need? Really? But once you understand Jewish thought here, you understand that there's, there's a thinking behind the scene. The Jews had a superstition. The superstition was this, that God could do only heavenly miracles. But demons, they could only do earthly miracles. And so they're trying to say, hey, yeah, he can feed 5,000, but he is the son of Satan. He, he definitely, they're, they're trying to, to look. And if you think about the Old Testament and the miracles that were on display, even through the prophets, I mean, you think about Elijah, right? Bringing fire down from heaven and, and, and burning up the bell, God's idols, and, and just everything coming from heaven, displaying that is God's man. And so the, they're wanting him to be like Joshua, who made the sun stop. They wanted to discredit him and to point to the reality that if he's, if he's going to feed another 5,000. By the way, as we went through those miracles, the reality of tearing fish and recreating more fish and bread, 
Sounds divine to me. They wanted to point out the reality that he is from Satan, that he can do these earthly ministries, but that is a sign that he is from Satan himself. And so Jesus responds. Look at verse 12. Sighing deeply. I mean, he understands. You see the compassion of our Lord. He, he understands their, their nature and their attack and their desire to, to go after him. And he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this, to this generation. It's pretty fascinating when you, when you rip this apart in the Greek. It is so much more emphatic in the Greek. Literally in the Greek, it says this, if I give a sign to this generation, may I die. I mean, that's a strong statement. He knows their motives. I mean, he can make the sun stop. He could show his creative powers. He can bring fire down from heaven. He can do all these things, but he knows their heart. They will not believe. And so he says, I'm not giving any more signs. Literally saying, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with your disobedience, your unrepentant and unbelieving heart. So verse 13 says this, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. I think you can look into that, leaving them, not only spiritually, but also physically. He's leaving them. He's washing his hands of them. And this, of course, leads us to our second group, our second point that Jesus interacts. And this is the interaction with his disciples. This is the growing light of his disciples. We see this in verses 14 through 21. Verse 14, and they had gotten, or had forgotten to take bread. Scene shifts. He, he's done with the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, scene shifts, and now the disciples. They had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. I mean, they were thinking about lunch, right? They were thinking about dinner. How much bread do we have? Do I got to share my loaf with you? I mean, they see this interaction. They see the attack. They see Christ leaving. They're almost just like, okay, we'll just go to the next place. By the way, what's for lunch? not seeing the significance of what Jesus had displayed to them with all the miracles and this encounter with the religious leaders, they are missing the spiritual theological understanding of what Christ is doing and what is happening. I guess you could say that there's a lot of understanding that needs to happen. And that's true. As much as we point at the disciples and kind of throw rocks at them, we got to understand that even in our own growth, the maturity of our faith continues to grow as we seek the scriptures and, and understanding but here they are, they need to, to be taught. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Verse 15, and he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The emphatic imperative commands, watch out 
should have got their attention and should have dropped every conceived thought about lunch. And it wasn't just a one-time statement. The Greek tells us that he was repeatedly saying this, watch out, continue to watch out, look out for these guys. A warning after warning, intense, severe warning against the influence of the Pharisees and against the influence of Herod. And like I said, even the influence of the Sadducees, as we know in Matthew chapter 16. And he equates them to leaven. And it's very remarkable when you think about leaven. Only twice in the scriptures is leaven ever used in a good light. Most often, leaven is used to what? Point out evil and the influence of others. course, this is an evil connotation, giving them warning to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. He's watching and telling them to, to be discerning, to be mindful. The Pharisees who were legalists and the Sadducees who were liberals and Herodians who were secularists or pagans of the day. And he says, watch out. Literally, he's telling them, separate yourself from them. And that is so true. You think about your own salvation. You think about the separation that God calls. You were once in the domain of darkness. You are now coming out of that, and you're called to walk in the light. You are called to separate yourself from the ideologies of the world. I think that's where the church has a lot of problem today. They like to cuddle up with the world, and they like to, to, to embrace some of the thoughts of what the culture says instead of embracing what the truth says. Leaven is a yeast. The yeast makes, of course, dough rise. And the way it makes it rise is, is Jesus' point. Leaven has a bunch of bacterial corruption in it to change the dynamic of the dough. And the dough rises. It changes shape. He is saying the ways of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians are the way of darkness, and they speak evil and oppose God and entice you to sin. Beloved, if you are not aware of the constant battle of the leaven of the world, you're going to be soaked up by their woke ideology, their anti-God stance, their worldliness. They're going to make you powerless. The warning is clear, and it wasn't just for the disciples. It's for all disciples for all time to understand the significance of what is happening Literally, this is a call for discernment. I was talking to a fellow pastor not too long ago, and we were just talking about the whole issue of the lack of discernment in churches. The ability to know what is right and what is wrong. 
The ability to, how about this, just to know your scriptures so that when anything opposes it, you stand up against it. A simple definition of discernment is, is, is the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinction about what is right, what is good, what is truth. All you got to do is turn on your TV and see that we, even in capital city, lack of discernment, a lack of understanding, a lack of what is right, what is, what is true. When you think about discernment, it's simply for the Christian is the ability to think biblically of what God says. It's about knowing truth from error. It's about knowing that when the world butts up against the church and against the truth and tries to distort God's word, discernment clearly sees that intrusion and stands on God's word alone. By the way, that, this is an active function of your Christian life. Look at the screen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul teaches us there, in verse 21 and 22, that it's the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning when it says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I mean, how clear can you get? It's okay to be discerning. It's okay to be a Berean. It's okay to look to the word of God and say, you know what? That doesn't match up. Oh, we know what the world's going to do. They're going to try to shut your mouth, right? They're going to try to ostracize you. Then I think about 1 John. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 4, 1, when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You look at those two verses, it's very clear that according to the Bible, discernment is not optional for the believer. It's required. And we must be on alert and not just go around and swallow any type of Kool-Aid that comes our way. Not to do so will lead you down a path of false teaching. It will lead you down a, a, to an unbiblical mindset. I mean, universities are, are flooded with this, challenging the born-again believer to, to think otherwise that God's word, there's more truth out there besides it. Jesus warns them and warns us, beware. Beware of the leaven. Discernment. I love what James says. He continues to plead for us to, to seek wisdom from above. And the reason you don't have it is because you don't ask for it. Discernment intersects every aspect of all our lives. And yet too often I think that we try to find the easy road and we just roll over and allow the ideology of Satan and the world to kind of just creep not only to our lives but into the church and allow it to be more like his church instead of Christ's church.
And here's the beauty of it. God's word provides everything that you need to have the discernment that he's asking for here. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted, his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to cave to this multi-transitional, whatever you want to call it. The Bible's clear. There's what? Two sexes. How more definitive do you need to be? I'm not saying that you got to run around with your two-by-fours and whack people over the head, but, but listen, even your soft coding of God's truth, God's word stands firm. It will not change. It is unrelenting. It will always stand. And so Jesus warns the disciples and us about this unrelenting dark leaven that continues to try to press against your thoughts and your actions. But here's the beautiful thing. When you come to Christ, Christ provides everything to stand against it. Verse 16, we'll move on here quickly. Verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Again, they missed the mark. Jesus is not talking about bread. He's talking about the ideologies, the, 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 the warning of the Pharisees. They didn't get it? Yes, they didn't get it. They missed the entire meaning of the warning. They thought with their stomachs. And so Jesus, in his patience, begins to teach them again. He says in verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Come on, you knuckleheads. Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Have you not seen a display of divine goodness and, and holiness before your eyes? Have you not heard of the truth that he is the Messiah, that he is God? Do you not hear and do you not remember? And speaking about remembrance, he jogs their memory. In verse 19, he says, when I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. I mean, leftovers. More than enough, abundant. Verse 20, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. It's almost like they remember exactly how many baskets were left. Why? Because they were munching on that as they went along, right? Verse 21, and he said to them, do you not understand? I mean, they saw the interaction with Jesus. They're probably thinking, go get him, Jesus. We're here behind you. But what's for lunch? And get this, they forget. You're hungry? Have you not seen when I done and feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000? Don't you think that I can just create a meal for you right now? 
which reminds me of the old adage that, that often the present stress of to that moment clouds our remembrance of the past. The present moment of distress makes us forget all the goodness and kindness of what God has done in a miraculous way in the past. I mean, there's such a great lesson to be learned there. I mean, think about it in your own life. Think about all the fulfilling ways God has provided for you in the past. And you're worried about the future? I mean, I get it. Things don't seem to add up at times. It looks like we don't have any bread. But don't you remember there was points where Jesus provided where there was 5,000 without bread, 4,000 without bread? Don't be short-sighted, beloved. God is always at work, and he's doing and displaying his goodness and kindness. And so why worry, right? Why worry? Probably one of the worst enemies of our own soul is to worry about what's going to happen next instead of looking at the provisions of God from the past, knowing that his character doesn't change and he will do what he wants to do for your good in the future. What's our takeaway from this? Let me just give you three of them. For one, you heard the exhortation, be a discerning Christian. Read your Bibles. Study them. The world's desire, Satan's desire is for you to shut up your Bible and not to look at it and not to study it. Because then he's got you. And he can twist the word like he did in the garden and get you to believe something that's not reality and not truth. Open your Bibles. Read them and study them. Why? Because you will always have opposition from the world. And the only way to have discernment is to be in the word of God. And know what it says so that when air attacks, you can stand firm and hold on to the eternal word of God. Second, a second takeaway, trust God to provide. Amen? Listen, he knows your needs. Trust him. He will provide for you. How he does it is probably one of the greatest joys of the Christian life. I mean, I can tell you story after story of how God provided I mean, one example that just jumps into my mind, we were at seminary, and you're living in California. That takes all your money, by the way. And you're trying just to survive. You're, you're looking for the bread that he provides. You're looking for ways. And, and we had a pretty good vehicle, but guess what? The vehicle broke down. I'm thinking, Lord, how in the world is this going to happen? How are we going to make this work? I look at the, the bank account, and I look at the, maybe the thought of what it's going to cost to repair it. started praying and asking the Lord, please help provide. And how he provided was just remarkable. When we entered in California, when we went to school there, California and all their taxation, they had these, so we brought our vehicle in. The emission test in itself, which was a sticker, was over almost close to $800 for the van. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And so my wife and I says, well, we bought it in Idaho. Yeah, that, that's the reason why. Here's, here's your bill for 800 bucks. And so I'm thinking, well, do I get anything for the $800? Please a sticker or something I can put on my car? They said, no, no sticker. 
time went on, this van breaks down, and I'm thinking, Lord, how are you going to provide? Well, somebody in the court system saw that as an illegal taxation for all incoming people that came into California. And so we got a rebate plus interest from the state of California that was enough to fix the van. I mean, you talk about the problems of God. Grumbling on the way in, right? It makes you want to think when you pay your taxes, don't grumble because it might come back more so, right? God providing in ways that are so clearly that I don't understand. He knew exactly in his sovereignty that our van was going to break down on what time and what day and what hour. He knew the way to provide. Trust him. Trust him. And finally... As we started this sermon, the whole idea of spiritual darkness. Listen, there might be some of you here this morning who are in that darkness. And by God's grace, if you're able to hear, the only way out of it is to turn to Christ. The only way out of it is to repent and to believe in him. He will be the only grace and the only illumination to get you out of the the muck and mire that you're in. So turn to him. Trust him and believe in him. Amen? Father, we thank you for the morning. So much to be preached. So much truth to learn. We note your your compassion, your patience with the disciples, and even to some degree, even to the religious leaders of the day. You rightly had full authority to bring fire down from heaven. They wanted a sign. And you could have burned them to a crisp if you desired. But your kindness and compassion was even displayed in their unbelief. We see your kindness and compassion to the disciples. We hear the warning to be discerning. The call to trust you and your provisions. And so, Father, those are simple truths that we can apply to our lives as we go from this place. We know the onslaught of the world is going to await us as we leave this place. It comes at us from all the social media and the the TVs and and even movies and just what we read. It, It just desires to get us to think wrongly about you. Father, help us to know what is right and what is true. And let us take a stand. We love you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness to to, to even transfer us out of darkness into light. And so we pray that as we continue to walk in the light, may we grow in sanctification. May we grow in our holiness. May we grow in our understanding. And may we seek you every day. And so to you alone be the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.